Well, this morning we're going to get back to 1 Timothy 4, and uh, we're going to take you to the woodshed. Jeff, I was talking to Jeff Jones, and he says, you're actually going to preach three verses in one Sunday? I said, yeah, I don't think I could take three Sundays of this. It's pretty painful. Um, so we're going to try and uh, get it over with in one session and uh, just find out some, there are some great things in this text. Uh, um, I barely got through in time the first service, but now since it never ends, the second service will just keep going. Hope they got a 90-minute cassette in there. No, we'll try and figure finish up at the normal time. We've been looking at 1 Timothy, and we know that this book is one of three books called Pastoral Epistles. An epistle is just a, a common name for letter, or an old-fashioned name for a letter. You write a letter to somebody, an epistle. And they're pastoral because Paul, the apostle, wrote three letters to pastors and One was Timothy, who was the pastor of the church at Ephesus. The other was Titus, who was the pastor of the church at Crete. And of course, Christianity was young. They didn't know very much. Uh, The church was new. Everybody was new, pretty much. You know, everybody was a new believer back then. There wasn't a lot of seasoned saints around. And these young men were in churches trying to fight the good fight. And Paul writes so that these men can know how people are to conduct themselves in the household of God, and specifically where the leaders as models and examples are to take the church. He tells leaders, this is what you need to be doing because this is what the church needs to be doing. You need to be an example because the church is following you. And so make sure you lead them in the right direction. The priorities of a good servant of Jesus Christ... And the texts before us are just thrust in our face. He has talked about the qualifications of elders and deacons in chapter 3 and the the fact that the church is to be a pillar in support of the truth. And then he says, watch out, there's going to be apostates. Watch out, there's going to be false teachers. And now he says, this is what I want you to do and be. And so in verses 6 through 16 of chapter 4, he paints this big portrait of the godly man who is to lead by example in the church. And so that's what we're working our way through this morning. This is what Paul meant when he was talking um, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3. If you look there, verse 1, when he says, It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now that word work there is the operative term. Being an elder is not being a person of mere position. There are some who who want to be an elder so they can have control, so they can have a say, so they can make things go their way, so they can receive accolades, so they can look important, but they don't desire the work. And the work is not just going to meetings you know, once or twice a week. That is just a small part of it. The work is the constant study, the constant application, and the constant teaching of the Word of God. It's never-ending, it's relentless, and it is a labor. 
And so when a man desires or aspires to the office of an overseer, that is what he's desiring to do or should be desiring to do, labor and strive to perform the work of studying and praying and preaching and teaching and modeling the truth. In this section alone, we have seen some pretty incredible things. I mean, in these verses, we've... He uses incredible terms that are scary. They're formidable. Listen to some of them. Terms like constantly, discipline, godliness, labor, strive, command, teach, be an example, give attention to, do not neglect, take pains, be absorbed in, pay close attention, and persevere. Those are scary, and that's just in the latter part of chapter 4. The whole book is that way. As a matter of fact, all the pastoral epistles are that way. Why? Because they're written to people who are to be leading the church in a direction. And so it's of the utmost importance that they put in major energy in doing what God wants them to do. Every one of those terms is a call to study the word, apply the word, or teach the word. That's what everything in this book can be summed up in. Now, this morning we come to the last three verses of chapter 4. And so if you have your Bible, follow along, and I'm going to read these three verses, and then we will pick them apart. Look at verse 14. He says this, Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. Here we have before us six commands that every believer should strive to progress in. They are all present active imperatives, which means that they are all commands which tell us to be in the continual state of doing. So let's look at these and see how, even though these principles are directed specifically to leaders, the principles apply to everyone. Notice The first part of verse 14, the first command, do not neglect. Here, the Greek word translated neglect means to think light of or to be careless with or to ignore. It's to have something that's kind of trivial and so it's such a low priority, you just neglect it. You know, like cleaning your oven. You know, who wants to clean their oven? You know, if you got a new oven, you just hit clean and it's fixed. But if you have an old one, you know what I mean. It's low on the priority. You know, you close the door out of sight, out of mind. And that's what it's talking about here. Don't neglect the spiritual gift within you. Timothy was neglecting to use his gifts. And if you read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you understand why, don't you? I mean, here we have this young man. He's thrust into a culture, a very hostile culture, a very pagan culture. He's weak. 
He's sickly. He's being attacked. There's false teachers. People are going apostate. The more he preaches, the more opposition he gets. And so he's kind of thinking, man, I need to cool it a little bit. And so he begins to neglect his spiritual gift. Now, we don't know all of what Timothy's spiritual gift was, but we know what part of it is, at least. We know he had the gift of teaching and preaching. Why? Because all the way through First and Second Timothy, Paul says, teach, preach, teach, preach, all the way through the books. Now, he may have had other gifts. He, he says, do the work of an evangelist. So maybe he was an evangelist also. But no doubt he had to teach and preach, and no doubt he was capitulating under the great pressure. So Paul says, don't neglect to use your spiritual gift that is in you. And this is why he said in 2 Timothy 1.6, kindle afresh the gift of God within you. He had the gift. The gift was in him, and Paul says, Hey, dude, get some wood on the fire. Get stoked. Get that thing blazing. Kindle it up. Don't go burying it. I mean, there's not even any heat coming off of you. You're cold. The embers are growing out. Kindle it up. You've got the gift in you. Use it. Now, the word gift comes from the Greek word charisma. And we use that word in English. We might say, oh, that person's got a lot of charisma. Or we might say, you know, that person goes to a charismatic church, which means that they believe in the sign gifts still existing. The word charisma comes from the word charis, which is the word translated grace in the New Testament, something freely given, some undeserved thing given to you. And so it literally would mean grace gift. Something God gives to you that you don't deserve. Now, what's neat about it is not only is the gift itself a gift of grace to you, it is also a channel of grace by which God will grace other people. God's grace flows through the gifts he gives the saints. Somebody teaches you, you are receiving God's grace through the gift of the person. Somebody encourages you, you are receiving God's grace through the gift. Not only do you receive spiritual gifts, but the grace of God flows through spiritual gifts. Now think about it. Is there ever a time you can think of anywhere in the Bible where it says, after a while, put aside your gift? After a while, bury your gift for a rainy day. After a while, after you've paid your dues, kick back. I mean, you've worked hard. I mean, you've paid your dues. Don't kid yourself. You need to use your spiritual gift until you die. And then you can retire. You have to fight the good fight until death. Get out there in the battlefield, wage the war, and when somebody cuts you down, then you can quit using your gift on earth. God gave you a gift, and that gift was given to you so you could serve other 
people with it. Now, if you neglect to use God's gift, his spiritual gift given to you, listen to me, you are stealing from other people. Stealing. You are withholding God's grace from the rest of the church. The church functions as each of us come together and each of us are given some gift. Now, one person doesn't do everything, but every person needs to do something. And as long as we're ministering to somebody and somewhere and some way, and they're ministering to other people, everybody ministers to each other. And the body is taken care of. You take your gift and you bury it. You're stealing from other people. God has deposited his grace gift in you so that his grace can flow through you and you've shut down the faucet. And it's tempting, even as a mature Christian, to lay down your sword. I mean, you know, you battle and battle. And I know some of you have been in major battles. And all of a sudden you get to the place where it's like, listen, man, I'm tired. You know, this person made me mad or this person disappointed me or somebody didn't give me thanks. And we keep our eyes off the author and finisher of our faith. And we take our sword and we hang it above the mantle as some trophy of the battle that we used to be in. Instead of saying... You know, I need to get that thing down. I need to pull down my sword. I need to get that thing sharpened up. I need to get that thing polished up. And I need to go to war more. That's what we all need to be doing. Because God's grace will flow through you. Others of you may not even know what your spiritual gift is. Others of you... Just look at your life and say, wait, I don't know. I don't know what my gift is. I'd use it if I knew, but I don't even know. You're not like Timothy. Look at Timothy. This is neat about Timothy. Look at the end of verse 14. He says, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Here are two reasons why Timothy knew his gift. The first reason is God told him. Timothy was one of the select people, the only person, you know, just about in all the scripture, who had God say, this is your gift. Not only that, he had the elders of the church lay their hands on him and confirm that he was gifted, teaching, preaching, and whatever else it was. So Timothy knew what his gift was. And even though he was a disciple of Paul, even though he traveled with Paul, even though he knew the right thing to do, it just goes to show that you can be a mature Christian, you can be a godly person, and still get discouraged and still be tempted to lay up your gift. And that's exactly what Timothy did. And that's why Paul says, don't neglect your gift anymore. Now you may be sitting out there saying, Jack, listen, I've never received a prophetic utterance. And uh, the elders never laid their hands on me and said, this was your gift, so I don't know. You know, what do I do? No, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you some, a little mini theology on spiritual gifts. We've done this before, but this is good. We're just going to look at a couple texts. First, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And we're just going to pop through here real quick. First, I just want to establish that if you are a believer, you have a spiritual gift. Look at verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This, from chapter 12, 1 through 14, the whole thing is about spiritual gifts. But he says this in 1. 
Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. So Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. Now, look at verse 7, or 4 through 7. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, notice that. Everyone is given a gift by the Spirit for the common good. Now, turn over to 1 Peter, which is after Hebrews, James, Peter... Let's see, where is 1 Peter anyways? It's in the New Testament. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. He's talking about the end end coming near and how we need to get with it and be fervent in your love for one another and be, be hospitable and don't be complaining. And look at verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it, in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold what grace of God. You are a grace vending machine if you're operating properly. Now, some of you have got a jam. You're banging on there. Nothing's coming out. God wants to have his manifold grace. And man, that term manifold makes me want to preach a whole other sermon. That the I should probably not go there. The manifold grace of God. God's grace is it's like his multifaceted grace is brought together and given to you, deposited in you, so that when you use your gift, you grace other people. God's grace flows through you. You're like a hose or a pipe. He wants to bless people through you. But you have to make sure you don't neglect your gift. You are to employ your gift in serving others. And if you don't, you're stealing from them. I mean, just think about this. What if your mailman decided to keep your mail for a year? Oh, people are sending you good Christmas cards and birthday cards, and you, you know, you probably don't care if he keeps the bills, but he sent, you know, he, people are sending you stuff, you know, you're ordering stuff online or whatever, and it never comes. Because the mailman's been keeping your mail, he's putting it in a box and storing it in his attic. And you're wondering, what, what in the world is going on here? Where is my mail? So you, you call up the mail and say, it's been a year, and I'm finally complaining. Well, Where's my mail? And they do a little research and they find out that your mailman has been stealing from you. You know what they're going to do with that guy? They're going to put him in jail. That's what people do when they don't use God's gift. God has given you a gift. It is within you. You don't use it? You're stealing. You're cheating other people in the church. They want to be blessed by you. You can bless them. They want to be blessed. I mean, how many people don't want to be blessed? I want to be blessed. And it happens when all of us use our gifts to minister to one another. Some people in big ways, some people behind the scene ways. I mean, there are people in this church, and I would mention their name, but they don't want me to mention their name, who serve so faithfully and no one ever knows what they do. 
Every week, week in and week out, they do these hidden tasks that just get done. It's so great. They're using their gifts to bless you. So, you look at your life and say, okay, Jack, I give up. I've buried my talent. I don't even know where it is. I'm like one of those squirrels, you know, and bury all the nuts, and pretty soon you can't find out where you put them. I lost my gift. I don't know where it is. I don't know what it is. What do I do? So let me just give you six things you can do. And the first thing you don't do, and this isn't one of the six, is don't take a spiritual gifts test. Take one of those tests, and Jack Hughes should not be teaching, not be preaching. He should be, you know, doing some other thing, showing sympathy. <laughs> Are you sure that's my gift? A lot of times you take those man-made tests, and I've had this people, people tell me, they say, well, you know, I never tried that because, because I took this test, and it told me that I wouldn't be good at that. I was supposed to be over here, and I kept trying to do that and do that, and it just never worked out. And finally, I tried this, and it's so wonderful, but, but what about the test? Throw it away! You don't need the test. I mean, Paul didn't say in 1 Corinthians you know, chapter 17, you know, take the test. But here's some things you can do. First, pray and ask God. That's biblical. And everything by prayer. So ask God, just say, God, what is my gift? Help me find my gift. Show me what my gift is. Give me desires to serve in a certain area. Bring people into my life. Show me where you want me to serve. Start praying. Secondly, Make sure you are walking in the Spirit. That is, you know, you're practicing godliness. You're reading your Bible. You're not living in unconfessed sin. Make sure you're walking with the Lord because it's very going to be very hard for the Lord to steer you in the direction He wants you to go if you're running away from Him. So you have to at least turn around and follow Him. Third, try serving in those areas that you have desires So in other words, you know, if you're just sitting back there and you're wondering, you know, I'd really like to be one of those guys up there in the top that turn all those cool knobs. I mean, they've got a lot of gadgets up there. I mean, they've got lights that do things and little meter things. And you're thinking, that sounds really fun. You need to go up there and meet the guy who runs all those knobs and say, hey, train me. You know, people ask me, you know, know, how come uh, Justin is preaching today? Because he needs to learn how to preach. Charles Spurgeon said, There's only one way to learn pottery, and that's to make pots. If you have a ministry, you see somebody with a desire, snag that person, bring them into your ministry, make them as excellent as you are, and if they excel, trade places with them. And then if you get killed in a car accident, things will just go on smooth. No ripple. You've got a replacement. You've got three replacements. You've got a whole army of replacements. Then you start out, you know, the whatever ministry. Train other people. Make it happen. So first, go after the areas of your desires. Now, if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, well, I have a desire to serve, but I don't know where. I just don't know where. Then keep praying, keep following the Lord, and then do this. Take the first thing that comes along. You get an opportunity to serve, serve. 
Whatever God's providence brings you, serve. Try and learn how to do it. Try and learn how to do it with excellence. And if it works out, great. If you love it, great. If other people are blessed, better. If they say, man, this is your thing, and you're loving it, and they're loving it, huh, you found your gift. But if after a while, you know, you start teaching that study, and people run away with their ears plugged, probably shouldn't be doing that anymore. (laughs) You look for those signs that tell you, well, okay, if I enjoy it, God's blessing me. Other people are confirming it. Man, you've got it nailed. But if that's not, then you try something else. Just try something else. Pray some more. Take the first thing that comes along. Try to be excellent. Stick with it for two, three, four, five months. Try and see if you start liking it, if you start excelling at it. If people who are discipling you, try and get somebody to disciple you. That means somebody to come alongside you and say, Here, this is how we run the kitchen at Calvary Bible Church. This is how we fold bulletins at Calvary Bible Church. This is what happens here or there. And then you just do it and try it out. And if you do that and it's a blessing, you're in, you're in the groove. Keep serving in different ministries until you find a ministry you like that brings you joy, that blesses other people, that other people will confirm as your gift, and voila, you're in the groove. Now just keep fighting until you drop dead in the battlefield. And that's all you have to do. Now, some of you may say, you know, I, I've tried that. I, I, I can't find my gift. Well, there may be a reason. It may be because you don't have one. I've talked to many people who, who thought they were Christians, who, who were convinced they were Christians, who, you know, my mom told me I was a Christian all growing up. I mean, I asked Jesus in my heart when I was three. But I've never really desired to serve, or every time I do, it just doesn't work out, or... Whatever. Some of those people just don't know Christ. Oh, they know about Jesus. They know he died on the cross and he rose again on the third day. They're like the demons. They have all the knowledge of all the things they need to believe. But a lot of times there's some sin in their life. There is some dark sin in their closet. And they don't want to let go of that sin. They know what they need to do, but they're unwilling to do it. They want to be 75% Christian. They don't want to forsake their wicked ways and their unrighteous thoughts and turn and follow the Lord so they can have pardon. They just want to be religious and go to church, but there's something in their life that they aren't willing to give up. Or maybe they have pride that, that's keeping them. They, you know, they Salvation by grace is good, but I have to do something. I have people who come into my office on a fairly regular basis, I talk to them about the gospel, and they tell me, well, I, when I ask them, you know, how do you know you're going to heaven? And they give me the same answer. Well, you know, I've been good. I've never murdered anybody. And, you know, I'm, I've been going to church, and I try and read my Bible, and, you know, I, I don't lie, cheat, and steal. And I'm waiting for Jesus died on the cross for my sins, and I've placed my faith in him. Never comes out of their mouth. Never. Aren't saved. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I mean, if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to beg God to forgive you. You need to realize that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he gave his life as a substitute so that you could be saved if you are willing to die to you, forsake your way, and follow Christ, to receive him and follow him in faith. 
trusting only in what he did, not what you did, to save you. And if you do that, gift. You're an unbeliever, you got a toolbox, there's nothing in there. There are no tools in your box. You can grope around in there forever, there's nothing in there. You come to Christ, man, you got tools. To each one is given a special gift for the common good. But if you don't know Christ, you don't have the gift. And that's why you may be frustrated. So if you are a believer, you have the gift, get it out, use it, find out what it is. If you are an unbeliever, come to Christ. Give your life to Him. Repent and be saved. And God will give you the gift. Now secondly, second command in the text Not only are we this channel of God's grace, look at the diligence that we're to use. In verse 15, he goes on to say, take pains with these things. The word take, or the phrase take pains might be translated to to continue in or cultivate or practice or exercise until you achieve mastery or skill in a subject, even if it's painful. You know, the Olympics are going on now. You know that every one of those people who's in the Olympics has pained themselves to get there. They have taken pains trying to be excellent in their field. Now, how would you like it if, you know, I just showed up on Sunday morning because, you know, after all, uh, you know, um, you can't expect me to work hard because I'm just the pastor and I had to go to a meeting last Friday night and stay up late. And so um, what I'm going to do is I'll find out why we're singing a song and pick a good text here to preach on. Oh, really? I am going to preach on uh, Uriah the priest. He built an altar according to all that King Ahaz sent from Damascus. Thus Uriah the priest made it before the coming of King Ahaz of Damascus. Let me just tell you some things about that. I don't even know what that's talking about. (laughs) But isn't that what happens if we don't pursue things with excellence? We just kind of wing it. A lot of Christians like to wing it. They have the gift and they want to use it. They just don't want to take pains being excellent at it. Then I come up here with some pathetic, no content, limp noodle sermon, and I preach it out there and you guys are just all nodding off and fall asleep more than you already do. (laughs) And, And that's how it is, isn't it? It's pathetic. It's worthless. Why even bother me with your shoddy preaching. Hopefully that's what you'd think. You're wasting my time. Why? Because you want excellent sermons. Why? Because God wants excellent ones. But you know what? He doesn't just want excellent sermons. He wants excellent bulletin folders, excellent helpers, servers, encouragers, Everything we do is to be with excellence. And excellence is not being as good as someone else. Excellence is being as good as you can be given the resources God has given you. Don't ever confuse excellence with fame. Fame is like a candle. Burns bright and just snuffs out. Excellence is the pursuit of of the best you can be with what you have. And so you won't be like somebody else. You'll be a little better, a little less, according to God's gift given to you. But whatever you do, seek to do it with excellence. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
2 Timothy 4. There's another verse. It's about the same thing. Verse 5. Now, all you have to do is just stick your spiritual gift in this verse. Notice what verse 5 says. But you, that's you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of, stick your spiritual gift in there, fulfill your ministry. We're all to do that. Every one of us, every one of us is to do that. God doesn't call certain people, oh, well, you guys can be shoddy. We just want 10% to be excellence. Everybody is to excellence. You all pursue excellence. And look at the next command. While we're taking pains with these things, notice what he says, the next command in verse 15, he says, be absorbed in them. This, of course, refers to the preceding command to take pains with these things, which refers to the thing before that, do not neglect your spiritual gift. Now, what's neat about this is that the word absorbed, if you have the New American Standard, is in italics because it doesn't appear in the Greek. The Greek literally reads, be in them. Again, it's a command. Always be in them. But it describes being placed inside of something else, to be enveloped or wrapped up or smothered or submerged into something. And that is why the New American Standard translated it, be absorbed in them. That's why the New King James Version says, give yourself entirely to them. And why the New International Version says, give yourselves wholly to them. A.T. Robertson translated the phrase that the minister should be up to his ears in these things. Now the application is apparent. Make your ministry to the body of Christ a priority in your life. Now, you've got a family, you've got a job, you know, you've got a life that you have to live, and you can't be doing ministry every second, um, you know, serving other people every second in every way. But you can serve people for Christ at your work. You can serve your family for Christ at home. You, you, all ministry doesn't happen here. This is just a part of it. Ministry should happen all the time. It should be the priority of your life. You should live your life thinking, how can I live for Jesus now? The what would Jesus do then? And it's verses like these that help us understand just how costly discipleship is. God wants you to use your gift. He wants his grace to flow through you. But in order for that to happen, you've got to pursue that gift with excellence. When you are an unbeliever, you just live for Satan. You live for the pressures of the world, you know, money or fame or whatever. You were all wrapped up in the world. And then when you became a Christian, you were freed from that, and God gave you a pair of scissors and said, start cutting it away. And you and I both know that worldly habits, worldly thinking, worldly motives, those things die hard, don't they? But they must die. We've got to get rid of them. That's why we have the class going on that we do on Sunday nights. But if you were like most, you will probably notice that these worldly habits are a battle. And that's what the work is. 
That's why it's so painful. We're trying to shed the world off of us. And it keeps, you know, you just go outside and it's just clinging to you. You constantly have to make an effort to fight the good fight because Satan will just pull you down. He'll hypnotize you and pretty soon you'll be sleeping on the battlefield. You don't even know what's going on. Look at the end of verse 15. Notice he says, take such pains in exercising your spiritual gifts, be so absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. John Calvin translated this, so that on every side and in every way your progress will be apparent. This tells us that spiritual gifts are something that we are to grow in. These are, this tells us that spiritual gifts, we progress in them. You know, right now, you may have the gift of teaching. But if you were to teach right now, you would be a lousy teacher. I mean, I remember the first time I taught an adult Sunday school class, it was so pathetic and wretched. I mean, I was, I was excited about the Bible, and I was studying, and I had been a Christian for, I think, about three years, and I had memorized a lot of scriptures, but I just my knowledge of the Bible is just so minuscule. Of course, back then I thought I knew everything. And, and I didn't know anything. I, I didn't have any training. I didn't know how to handle the Word of God with accuracy. I, did, I had never taken any hermeneutics. I didn't even know about context. You know, I was like a novice car mechanic with two tools in his toolbox, a hammer and a pair of pliers, so I could bang and pinch, and that was it. <laughs> and so I, I was asked by this person just out of the blue. I, I wasn't seeking to do this. I mean, in the back of my mind, I thought, you know, someday... I would like to be able to teach the Bible. And this guy came up to me and says, Jack, how would you like to teach the adult Sunday school class? I'm going to be gone for a week. He's like, me? Me? You know, no training, no discipleship, nothing. The guy just asked me. I couldn't believe it. And so, man, I studied so hard, and I'm telling you, I feel so sorry for those people. I quoted them a zillion scriptures, man. I fed them a whole cow on the hoof raw. Just, <laughs> Instead of giving them, you know, a nice piece of steak, medium well, man, I gave them the whole beast. And after class, you know, they're... I think somebody <laughs> tried to encourage me and they said, Whoa, a lot of good information. But you know what? I received more opportunities. They had me back, which was a miracle of God's grace. And 23 years later, after studying the Bible and going to constant, you know, seminars and seven years of graduate school and and studying and teaching every single week, I'm better than I was, but I haven't arrived. I mean, just ask my wife. Ask all the people who write me letters every week. Yeah, ask the interns. Yes, I go, Jack, do you know you did this? Yeah, I did, huh? So wait till you get your turn. I say things like like wrong. You know, I tell my kids all the time, like is a comparison term. And then I'll be like this and like that. And I go, Dad, you did it. You did it in your sermon. Oh, no. So we never get there, but we need to press on. We need to take pains with these things. We need to be absorbed in them. Turn over to Philippians chapter 3. I like Philippians 3. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. 
You know, I always remember these for a General Electric Power Company. Or go eat popcorn. And then somebody came up to me after the service and said, Gentiles eat pork chops. So, whatever one you want, Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul here says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the upward prize, for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I love that. Now, let me think about this. Who was Paul? Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees, right? Trained by Gamaliel, one of the greatest Jewish rabbis who ever lived. He was a fanatic studier of the law before he came to Christ. I mean, if anybody knew the scriptures, it was the Apostle Paul. And so he comes to the Lord, and God says, Well, I've saved you, Paul, now since you know everything. Get out there and preach! No. Do you remember what he said in the beginning of Galatians? God sent him to school for 14 years. 14 years. And then after that, they still said his speech was contemptible. Content was good, though. Holy Spirit helped him out. So don't think that just because you're bad, that you're always going to be bad. If you have a desire, there's usually a reason you have a desire. If your heart is right with the Lord, usually there is a reason. God is trying to encourage you to pursue something. And sure, at the beginning, you aren't going to be as good as somebody who's worked and worked and worked at it. But work and work and work at it so you can be as excellent as you can be. Now notice, the next command is pay close attention to how you Live. The beginning of verse 16, pay close attention to yourself. A command which means to hold tightly to, watch carefully, be alert to, so that your mind is really focused on something. You remember the story in Acts 3 when there's the blind, or not blind beggar, but the lame beggar. Um, John and Peter are getting ready to go to the temple and they come across the guy who's begging, you know, alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And the text says that, that they, they said, Look at us. And this is what the text says. That he gave them, this is the lame guy, he gave them his attention expecting to receive something from them. That is, he thought, they're going to give me something. All of his focus was on John and Peter. Of course, they didn't give him any money, they healed him. But that's the same word used in this this text right here. But this is a command form. Give your attention to, pay close attention to something. And this is what God says you must do when it comes to your life. Pay close attention to your life and how you live. Why? Because you are either the greatest opponent of Christ or the greatest advocate for Christ, depending on how you live. Have you ever run into somebody who said, well, you know, I used to go to church, but oh, so-and-so was such a hypocrite, and they were, and so I've never gone back. 
And then have you ever talked to somebody who said, you know, I never wanted to go to church, but man, I kept looking at so-and-so's life and I just thought, man, I want that. And that's how I came to the Lord. See, you are a billboard for Christ. And the question is, what does your billboard say to people who are looking at your life? And this is such a huge thing in 1 Timothy. We don't have time to look at all of these passages. But in 1 Timothy 1.16, in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, in 1 Timothy 3.2, 7, 10 through 11, 15, 1 Timothy 4, 6, 7, 10, 12, and 15, and chapter 5, 4, 7, 10, 21, 22, and 6, 3, 11, 13, and 14, and 18, he gives exhortations to be good examples. Just in that one book. It is so critical that you live your life with excellence in the world. People are watching you. People are watching you in the church. They're watching you in the world, and they're looking at you to see how you're living. I mean, there is this, I remember I was working at this hospital in the instrument room, and, you know, I was a Mr. Joe witnesser and um, witnessing to everybody and talking to people about God, at least trying to. They kind of, kind of scatter from me. I didn't have any tact back then. <laughs> and... Uh, so people would run from me. And, uh, you know, I remember one time telling a joke. And it was, it was at a little innuendo in there that wasn't good. And I'm telling you, they used that against me forever. You know, you, all you got to do is say, you know, well, you know what the Bible says about, yeah, but you told that dirty joke one time. Well, it wasn't that dirty. It, well, it was. I mean, it just totally, it just like puts a damp rag right on your witness. If you don't watch how you live, you just ruin your witness. You disqualify yourself in people's sight, and they don't want to hear you anymore. That la, 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 you know. You don't have anything to say to them. And then you add to their mental excuses for why they would never become a Christian, because you're just as bad as they are, but you say you aren't. At least that's what they think. They never hear you say, oh, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner. They only see you as being self-righteous because as Christ shows through you, they're convicted by that. You know, I love to garden. I love to garden. I mean, every house I've lived in, I've had a greenhouse and grown flowers. I mean, I just love it. If you were to go buy my house right now, you would think, really? I mean, I'm jackhammering out things. I just dug this huge trench and replaced the sewer pipe and dug another trench and replaced the water line, ran conduits, and I'm digging drain lines. And I mean, it's a mess. The only thing I have grown in my front yard is two volunteer daffodils. I just saw them today. <laughs> the rest I fertilize regularly with Roundup and just annihilate them. And you look at my yard and you think, you are no gardener. And that's how people, when they're looking at you, what do they see? What are they saying? Are they saying, you know, man, that, that guy, he loves God. That guy is so honest. That guy is so kind. He is so loving. He, he is so nice to me. I mean, I treat him like dirt, and he is always there. He is always faithful. He, that guy, no bad word ever comes out of that person's mouth. That guy never misses church. Man, that guy loves to study his Bible. That is that what they see? I hope so. You need to pay close attention to yourself. Then the fifth thing is, look at verse 16. 
Also pay close attention to your teaching. This might be pay close attention to your doctrine. It's really the things you believe, the things you would speak to others. So just as you are to be intensely interested in how you're living your life, you should be intensely interested in how you are teaching or what you believe. You know, it amazes me how many Christians don't really think accuracy in handling the scriptures is important. I mean, you know, come on, I read it and I got a thought and you read it and you get a thought. I mean, what's the big deal? You know, they'll, they'll come upon some verse, you know, they'll pop open their Bible and just, oh yeah, God spoke to me. And they'll die on that verse. You know, and then they come or, you know, say, confront me because they have a verse. And I say, well, well what's the context of that verse? I don't know. Come on. Do you know the Bible commands us to handle accurately the word of truth? It's not some optional thing that certain people with lots of training have to do. It's something that everybody has to do. Turn to 2 Timothy 2.15. Same pastor, same church, same reminder. Different spot. 2 Timothy 2.15. Here is a command. Now, this isn't a present active imperative. This is an aorist active imperative, which is the strongest form of the command. You be diligent. Which means to constantly persist. To do what? To present yourself approved to God. Another means you are on display. So be diligent always to put yourself on display before God because you are on display, God. So make sure that your display is approved. Well, just how much effort should you put into it? As a workman. What does that mean? To labor to the point of sweat and exhaustion is what that means. You always be consistently diligent, like a workman laboring to the point of sweat and exhaustion, knowing that you are on display before God to be approved. And then he says, make sure you are not ashamed. Why? Because if you aren't diligent... If you don't work like a workman, you should be ashamed because that's what God calls us to. And then notice the end of the verse. Handling accurately or accurately handling the word of truth. You must pay close attention to yourself and your teaching. Turn over to Titus chapter 1. These pastoral epistles, man, they, they go for it. He says in chapter 1, verse 10, oh, that's really the best place to start. Um, he talks about these rebellious men and empty talkers, deceivers. Um, Titus had a lot of opposition, just like Timothy did. And then he says in verse 11, they must be silenced. They're upsetting households. Um, then he says, a prophet of their own says that Cretans, those people who live in Crete, are liars, evil beasts, and gluttons. And Paul says, it's true. They are evil beasts and gluttons. He says, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in faith. Man, that is, reprove them severely? Then he says, don't pay attention to Jewish myths and He talks about how everything they think of is defiled because their conscience is defiled. That they profess to know God, but with their deeds they deny Him. Look at verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1. 
But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. That is, pay close attention to your teaching. That's what every believer needs to do. You wonder why we offer these classes on how to study the Bible? That is the reason. Next. The next command, the last command, middle of verse 16, Paul gives to us is persevere in these things. Literally stick with it. Continue doing it. Tarry long over something. Remain, stay, or abide on top of it. It really means persevere in what things? Your teaching. Persevere in what? Paying close attention to yourself. What do you think of when you think of persevering? I mean, right now, would you say you persevere in your teaching and your living? I, I looked this up in Webster's. I usually don't do this because, you know, the Bible is written in Greek. The, the answer is good. Look at this. Webster says that to persevere is to persist in a state, enterprise, or undertaking in spite of counter-influences, opposition, or discouragement. Don't you like that? I love that. Just persevere, even though there's counter-influence, opposition, discouragement. Now, how is it that you persevere? When, I mean, you make a commitment to serve God, and as soon as you do, Satan says, Whoa! Whoa! We've got a person here. He's on fire. Uh, you legion of demon, demons, go thwart them any way you can. And you just get every sort of opposition. The more godly you are, the more faithful you are to teach, the more opposition you will encounter. This isn't something that's reserved for a select few of us who have an office here. This is for everyone. Listen. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, I love this, indeed, which means truly, truly, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Oh, happy day. It's to be expected. I just want you to know. Expect it. People come up and go, guy, I'm really sorry, you know, that people are writing you hate mail, and I'm sorry they call you on the phone, and I'm sorry they call you at home and trying to argue with me about stuff. I mean, people in other churches and other places, you know, I mean, you start preaching the word in a church, and, and everybody in the church criticizes, and then all of a sudden they send out tapes. And then everybody who gets a tape wants to refute me from afar. You know, people in New Jersey trying to fix me. And now that we're on the internet, I've got people in South America and all over the world wanting to fix me. And people go, doesn't that discourage you? No. That encourages me. Why? Because that's what God said would happen. That's all. It's not a bad thing. It's to be expected. It's normal. I mean, Jesus said, hey, if they persecuted me, what do you think they're going to do to you? Matthew 10, read it sometimes. I send you out as sheep among what? Wolves. What do wolves do to sheep? They eat them. You're sheep. The wolves are out there. But you know what's great about this verse? Is you think, now Jack, why would anybody in his right mind 
want to take pains and be absorbed and pay close attention and persevere in all these things. Look at the end of verse 16. This is so good. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. Now, Paul wasn't saying, Timothy, you're going to be the next Messiah. You're going to replace Jesus. That's not what he's saying. I mean, what does Romans tell us? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing what? By the word of Christ. And how can they hear unless what? Someone is sent. And guess who that is? You. You. You are sent. We're all sent to share the gospel. And God wants to use you as a channel of his grace so that he can save people because of the influence he works through you. That's why it's so important not to neglect your spiritual gift. You remember what Jesus said in Mark 8, 34 and 35? Let me just read it to you. He summoned the crowd and his disciples and said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Deny what you want and take up his cross and follow me. And then he said this. This is so great. And some of us have probably never read this in this light. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. He's talking about the lake of fire. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will find it. You want to serve God and you want to be an influence for the gospel? You will find your life. You will save it. Paul said in Romans 11:14 that he hoped to move the Jews to jealousy that he might save some. In 1 Corinthians 9:22 Paul said he became all things to all men that he might save some. Now Paul didn't have any delusions that he was the Messiah. What he's talking about is I want to do everything I can to influence people for Christ. I want to live with such excellence. I want to teach with such excellence that people see Jesus in me and hear Jesus coming out of my mouth and they will come to repentance and God will use me as his channel to save them. And that's what this whole section here is about. Being an influence. Robert Murray McShane, a man who lived hard for God, said this, quote, Do not forget the culture of the inner man. I mean of the heart. How diligently the Calvary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will the success be. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God, end quote. Oh, that's good. That is real good. When you leave here today, I want you to remember these words. Don't neglect your spiritual gift. Take pains with your ministry. Be absorbed in serving other people. 
Pay close attention to how you live your life. Pay close attention to what you teach. Persevere in doing these things, even if you encounter great opposition, because in doing these things, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. What a great promise. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for what a treat it is that we can come and study it in this place. Father, I just pray for Calvary Bible Church that all of us, every person here would know you and truly be saved. Father, only you can do that. Only you can quicken us. Only you can bring conviction upon us. Only you can draw us to yourself. And Father, I pray for all who are believers that we would not neglect the spiritual gift within us. That we would remember that you have called us as good stewards of your manifold grace to use our gift so you can bless other people through us. May we do it with excellence. May we do it with perseverance. May we die in the battlefield fighting into the very last moment. Father, we know this is your will. We pray that you would cause us to be that way. In Christ's name, amen.